0: Section Twenty Two of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume Four by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Catherine Howard, Chapter Two, Part One. The Queen, unconscious of how dark a cloud impended over her was receiving fresh tokens of regard every hour from Henry, who behaved as if it were his intentions to prove to the world how much the wife was dearer than the bride. They arrived at Windsor on the 26th of October, and proceeded to Hampton Court on the 30th, in readiness to keep the festival of all saints. Henry and Catherine both received the sacrament that day, Henry, on this occasion, while kneeling before the altar, raised his eyes to heaven and exclaimed aloud, I render thanks to thee, O Lord, that after so many strange accidents that have befallen my marriages, thou hast been pleased to give me a wife so entirely conformed to my inclinations as her that I now have. He then requested his confessor, the Bishop of Lincoln, to prepare a public form of thanksgiving to Almighty God for having blessed him with so loving, dutiful, and virtuous a queen. This was to be read on the morrow, which was all souls day. But on that fatal morrow, while Henry was at mass, the paper that contained the particulars of the misconduct of her, whom he esteemed such a jewel of womanhood and perfect love to himself, was put into his hands by Cramner, with the humble request that he would read it, when he was in entire privacy the object of cranmer in presenting the information against the queen to henry in the chapel was evidently to prevent the announcement to the people of the public form of thanksgiving which had been prepared by the bishop the absence of Catherine from her accustomed place in the royal closet afforded the archbishop the better opportunity of striking this decisive blow henry at first treated the statement as a calumny invented for the destruction of the queen for as he himself afterwards declared he so tenderly loved the woman and had conceived such a constant opinion of her honesty that he supposed it rather to be a forged matter than the truth on which being greatly perplexed he sent for the lord privy seal the lord admiral sir anthony brown and sir thomas rodesley to whom he opened the case saying at the same time he could not believe it to be true, and yet, the information having been once made, he could not be satisfied, till the certainty thereof were known, but he would not in any wise, that in the Inquisition, any spark of scandal should arise against the Queen. He then dispatched the Lord Privy Seal to London, where Lascelles was secretly kept, to try if he would stand to his saying. Lascelles reiterated his tale, and added, that he would rather die in the declaration of the truth, since it so nearly touched the king, than live with the concealment of the same. His sister was also examined, who gave evidence of the early misconduct of the queen. That Catherine had admitted Durham and Mannox, with John Bulmer, and other persons, who were acquainted with her fatal misconduct, into her royal household, was probably a matter in which she had no choice, as she was entirely in their power, but the circumstance of their being there afforded a startling confirmation of the charges against her rodesley received express instructions from the king to take durham into custody on an accusation of piracy because he had been before in ireland formerly noted for that offence making that pretence lest any spark of suspicion should get abroad from his examination the arrest was effected and henry's wrathful jealousy having been powerfully excited by a report that the old duchess of norfolk should have the folly to say when in the queen's chamber to a certain gentlewoman there pointing to durham this is he who fled away into ireland for the queen's sake caused him to be examined very sharply as to the nature of his connection with the queen durham boldly acknowledged that a promise of marriage had been exchanged between himself and the queen many years previous to her union with the king that they had lived as man and wife while he was in the service of her grandmother the duchess of norfolk and that they were regarded in that light among the servants in the family that he was accustomed to call her wife and that she had often called him husband before witnesses that they had exchanged gifts and love-tokens frequently in these days and he had given her money whenever he had it he solemnly denied that the slightest familiarity had ever taken place between them since katharine's marriage with the king this was the substance of his first statements freely given nor could the extremity of torture wring from him anything of further import against the queen neither is there the slightest evidence tending to convict her of having renewed her criminal intimacy with him on the contrary it would appear by the bitter scorn of her expressions when compelled to name him that he had become the object of her greatest aversion after she had seen the folly of her early infatuation and felt the blight that his selfish passion had been the means of casting on her morning bloom of life when the result of the first day's investigation was brought to the king, by the persons employed in that business, he seemed like a man pierced to the heart, and, after vainly struggling for utterance, his pride and firmness gave way, and he burst into a passion of tears. He left Hampton Court the next morning, without seeing the queen, or sending any message to her, and the same day the council came to her in a body, and informed her of the charge that had been made against her, she denied it with earnest protestations of her innocence but the moment they were gone fell into fits so violent that her life and reason were that night supposed to be in danger when this was reported to the king he sent cranmer to her in the morning with a deceitful assurance that if she would acknowledge her transgressions the king although her life had been forfeited by the law had determined to extend unto her his most gracious mercy Catherine, who was in a state of frantic agony when the archbishop entered, was overpowered with softer emotions on hearing the message, and unable to do more than raise her hands with expressions of thankfulness to the king for having shown her more mercy than she had dared to ask for herself. In the evening, Cramner returned to her again, when, finding her more composed, he drew from her a promise that she would reply to his questions as truthfully and faithfully as she would answer at the day of judgment, on the promise which she made at her baptism, and by the sacrament which she received on All Hallows' Day last past. The particulars of the queen's behavior during these interviews, and the agonizing state of excitement in which she was at this dreadful crisis of her fate, will be best detailed in the following letter from Cramner to the king. Cramner to Henry the Eighth it may please your majesty to understand that at the repair to the queen's grace i found her in such lamentation and heaviness as i never saw no creature so that it would have pitied any man's heart in the world to have looked upon her and in that vehement rage she continued as they informed me which be about her from my departure from her unto my return again and then i found her as i do suppose far entered towards a frenzy which i feared before my departure from her at my first being with her surely if your grace's comfort had not come in time she could have continued no long time in that condition without a frenzy which nevertheless i do yet much suspect to follow hereafter as for my message from your majesty unto her i was purposed to enter communication in this wise first to exaggerate the grievousness of her demerits then to declare unto her the justice of your grace's laws and that she ought to suffer by the same and last of all to signify unto her your most gracious mercy but when i saw in what condition she was i was fain to turn my purpose and to begin at the last part first to comfort her by your grace's benignity and mercy for else the recital of your grace's laws with the aggravation of her offences might peradventure have driven her into some dangerous ecstasy or else into a very frenzy so that the words of comfort, coming last, might have come too late. And after I had declared your grace's mercy extended unto her, she held up her hands, and gave most humble thanks unto your majesty, who had showed her more grace and mercy than she herself thought meet to sue for, or could have hoped for. Then, for a time, she became more temperate and moderate, saving that she still sobbed and wept but after a little pausing she suddenly fell into a new rage much worse than before now i do use her thus when i do see her in any such extreme braids i do travail with her to know the cause and then as much as i can i do labor to take away or at the least to mitigate the cause and so i did at that time i told her there was some new fantasy come into her head which i desired to open unto me and after a certain time when she had recovered herself that she might speak she cried and said alas my lord that i am alive the fear of death did not grieve me so much before as doth now the remembrance of the king's goodness for when i remember how gracious and loving a prince i had i cannot but sorrow but this sudden mercy more than i could have looked for showed unto me so unworthy at this time maketh mine offences to appear before mine eyes much more heinous than they did before and the more i consider the greatness of his mercy the more i do sorrow in my heart that i should so misorder myself against his majesty and for all i could say to her she continued in a great pang a long while after that she began something to remit her rage and come to herself she was meetly well unto night and i had good communication with her and as i thought brought her into a great quietness nevertheless at night about six of the clock she fell into another pang but not so outrageous as the first and that was as she showed me because of remembrance that at the time of the evening as she said master hennage was wont to bring her news of your grace and because i lack time to write all things to your majesty i have referred other things to be opened by the mouth of the bearer of this sir john dudley saving i have sent enclosed all that i can get of her concerning any communication with durham which although it be not so much as i thought yet i suppose is surely sufficient to prove a contract although she thinks it be no contract the cause that master baynton was sent to your majesty was partly for the declaration of her state, and partly because, after my departure from her, she began to excuse and tamper those things which she had spoken unto me, and set her hand, as, at my coming unto your majesty, I shall more fully declare by word of mouth, for she saith, that Durham used to her importune force, and had not her free will and consent. Thus, Almighty God, have your majesty in his preservation and governance, from your grace's most bounded chaplain t canturin from cranmer's assertion that the queen had set her hand to the paper it has been inferred that she was able to write but it might be only her mark of attestation and even if she could sign her name it does not prove her capability of writing letters or anything beyond a signature in the whole of this transaction there is nothing more extraordinary than the perversity of katharine in refusing to acknowledge that as far as an obligation which had not received the sanction of the church could go she was plighted to her kinsman francis durham before she received the nuptial ring from king henry but with the same headstrong rashness which had characterized her conduct from childhood she determined to cling to her queenly dignity at all hazards rather than admit any plea that would have the effect of rendering her subsequent marriage with the king null and void the following passages are subjoined on that point from her confession which was sent by cramner to the king being again examined by my lord of canterbury of contracts and communications of marriage between durham and me i shall here answer faithfully and truly as i shall make answer at the last day of judgment and by the promise that i made in baptism and the sacrament i received upon all hallows day last past first i do say that durham hath many times moved me unto the question of matrimony whereunto as far as i remember i never granted him more than i have confessed and as for those words i do promise that i love you with all my heart i do not remember that i ever spoke them but as concerning the other words that i should promise him by my faith and troth i am sure i never spoke them questioned whether i called him husband and he me wife i do answer that there was communication in the house that we two should marry together and some of his enemies had envy thereat wherefore he desired me to give him leave to call me wife and that i would call him husband and i said i was content and so after that commonly he called me wife and many times i called him husband and he used many times to kiss me and i suppose this is true that at one time he kissed me very often some who stood by made observations on his conduct whereunto he answered who should hinder him from kissing his own wife king henry remained in the neighbouring palace of oatlands whither he had withdrawn to await the result of these investigations. He appears to have been torn with contending passions, and not venturing to trust his own feelings, with regard to his unhappy queen, he left all proceedings to the direction of Cramner and the council. Catherine was now placed under arrest, and her keys were taken away from her, and on the 11th of October, the Archbishop of Canterbury, with rodesley and mr comptroller received orders to go to the queen and signified to her the king's pleasure that she should depart on the following monday to Sion house while the inquiry pended the state of a queen was not entirely taken from her but reduced to the following appointments which are copied from the order in council the furniture of three chambers hanged with mean stuff without any cloth of a state canopy of which three one shall serve for mr baynton and the others to dine in and the other two to serve for her use and with a small number of servants the king's highness's pleasure is that the queen have according to her choice four gentlewomen and two chamberers foreseeing always that my lady baynton be one whose husband the king's pleasure is should attend the queen and have the rule and government of the whole house besides mr baynton his wife and the almoner the king appointeth none specially to remain with her the rest are to depart upon monday next and the king's pleasure is that my lady mary be conducted to my lord prince's house by sir john dudley with a convenient number of queen katharine's servants lady margaret douglas the daughter of henry's sister the queen of scotland had likewise to make way for the disgraced queen's establishment she was conducted to kenning hall and with her went the young duchess of richmond the queen's maids of honour were ordered to return to their friends excepting mrs bassett whom the king considering the calamity of her friends determined to provide for then following the king's resolution to lay before the parliament and judges the abominable behaviour of the queen but without any mention of the precontracted to durham which might serve for her defence but only to open and make manifest, the king's highness's just cause of indignation and displeasure. Considering that no man would think it reasonable that the king's highness, although his majesty doth not yet take the degree of her estate utterly from her, should entertain her so tenderly in the high degree and estate of a queen, who, for her demerits, is so unworthy of the same. Therefore the king's majesty willeth, that whoever among you know not only the whole matter but also how it was first detected by whom and by what means it came to the king's majesty's knowledge with the whole of the king's majesty's sorrowful behaviour and careful proceeding in it should upon the sunday coming assemble all the ladies and gentlewomen and gentlemen being now in the queen's household and declare unto them the whole process of the matter except that ye make no mention of the precontract but omitting that set forth such matter as might conform their misdemeanor touching the queens departing from that house and removing to sion shall be on monday next coming such ladies only to remain at hampton court to abide the queens removing as by advertisement from you of those that shall succeed there providing always that the ladies keep their day of departure upon monday and such only to remain at hampton court to abide the queen's removing as shall be attendant at sion giving you mr comptroller to understand that mr weldon master of the household hath been here spoken to to make provision of wine beer and other necessaries at sion for that purpose at the king's palace of westminster the eleventh of november at night your loving friends norfolk southampton suffolk russell anton brown anthony wingfield Rafe saddler furthermore his majesty's pleasure is that mr seymour shall remain there with all the jewels and other things of the queens till she be gone and then to bring them hither and to the queen's grace ye must appoint six french hoods with the appurtenances with edges of goldsmith's work so there be no stone or pearl in the same Likewise, as many pairs of sleeves, six gowns, and six kirtles of silk damask and velvet, with such things as belong to the same, except always stone and pearl, at the court, Westminster, to my lord of Canterbury at Hampton Court. In parts of this order we trace the lingering tenderness of the king for her, who had been so lately the object of his adoring fondness. It is also curious to observe how those who at first, Raked up the most trivial gossips' tales that eight years ago circulated among the menials of the Duchess of Norfolk, in order to establish the fact of a pre-contract between Durham and the Queen. Now cautioned their colleagues by no means to mention the pre-contract, lest it should serve her for an excuse to save her life. The Council had, in fact, come to the determination of proceeding against the Queen on the awful charge of adultery and finding it impossible to convict her of that crime with durham they determined to fix it on some other person but so circumspect had been the deportment of katharine since her marriage that the only man to whom she had ever manifested the slightest degree of condescension was her first cousin thomas culpepper this young gentleman was the son of katharine's uncle sir john culpepper of holingbourne in kent he was a gentleman of the privy-chamber to henry the eighth before the elevation of his fair kinswoman to the fatal dignity of queen-consort his name is found among the royal appointments at the marriage of anne of cleves and he distinguished himself in the at durham house in honour of those nuptials in the thirty-third year of king henry he obtained the grant of three manors from the crown the nearness of their relationship naturally caused great intimacy between him and katharine for they had been companions in childhood but whether there was ever a matrimonial engagement in perspective between them, as suspected by her forsaken and jealous lover, Durham, previous to her union with the king, cannot be ascertained. It is possible that such a report might have decided the council to implicate him with the queen, in a charge of adultery. As this was the only means of dissolving the king's marriage, the queen's female attendants were strictly examined with a view to establish the charge. Whether these unfortunate women were examined by torture, like the men, or only put in terror of it, is not on record. But when we remember that Rottesley and Rich were the agents by whom the evidences were collected, it may be supposed they were not very scrupulous as to the means they employed. These were the men afterwards found superseding, the more merciful executioner in his aboard office, in the dungeon of the young, the lovely and pious Anne Askew when provoked by her silent fortitude they threw off their gowns and worked the rack with their own ferocious hands till they nearly tore her delicate frame asunder these two men were the most unprincipled and sanguinary of the whole swarm of parvenus of whom henry's cabinet was composed rodesley is thus portrayed by a contemporary poet from vilest state of base and low degree by false deceit by craft and subtle ways of mischief mould and key of cruelty was crept full high borne up by various days with ireful eye or glaring like a cat killing by spite whom he thought fit to hit it is impossible to read Rodesley's reports of the examinations of the witnesses without perceiving his deadly malice against the queen and her kindred when writing to his colleague sadler he does not disguise his satisfaction at piking out anything that is likely to serve the purpose of our business as he calls it i assure you writes he my woman tilney hath done us worthy service and true as it appeareth the evidence on which mr secretary rodesley felicitates himself so highly goes no farther than to prove that the queen was surrounded by spies who were disposed to place evil constructions on her most trifling departure from the rigour of royal etiquette the following is the document alluded to the deposition of katharine tilney at westminster november thirteenth thirty three henry the eighth she saith that she remembers at lincoln the queen went two nights out of her chamber when it was late to lady Rockford's chamber which was up a little pair of stairs by the queen's chamber and the first night this deponent and margaret her colleague went up with her and the queen made them both go down again but margaret went up again of soons and this deponent went to bed with mrs friswith another of the queen's chamberers as far as she remembereth when it was late about two of the clock margaret came up to the bed to them and she tilney said to margaret jesus is not the queen abed yet and margaret said yes even now the second night she says that the queen made all her fellows go to bed and took only this deponent with her at which time she tarried also in manner as long as she did the other night during which time this deponent was in a little place with my lady rockford's woman and therefore on her peril saith she never saw who came unto the queen and my lady rockford nor heard what was said between them item she saith that the queen hath caused her to do sundry such strange messages to Lady Rockford, that she could not tell her how to utter them, and at Hampton Court, lately she bade her go to my Lady Rockford, and ask her, when she should have the thing she promised her, and she, Lady Rockford answered, that she sat up for it, and she would the next day bring her word herself. A like message and answer was conveyed to and from my lord of Suffolk it is of course impossible to penetrate into the secret of these mysterious messages but considering that the king's brother-in-law suffolk was one of the parties concerned it is impossible to imagine they were any way connected with love affairs and therefore the probability is they related to supplies of money or the private purchase of jewels or articles of adornment which the queen employed the agency of these persons to procure in an underhand way Catherine, like all persons who have been early initiated into the dark mysteries of sin had evidently acquired a systematic habit of concealment even with regard to those trifling actions which when openly performed would never excite suspicion the testimony of margaret morton tilney's companion is unfavourable to the queen as far as her own opinion goes she imagined that the Lady Rockford was a party to some intrigue that the Queen was carrying on at Lincoln, Pontefract and York. When they were at Pontefract, she says, that the Queen had angry words with Mrs. Lufkin, another of the chamberers, and herself, and forbade their attendance in her bedchamber, on which these two ladies kept a jealous watch on Her Majesty's proceedings. Lady Rockford, Margaret said, conveyed letters to and from the queen to Culpeper, as it was supposed, and one night, when they were at Pontefract, and the queen was in her bedchamber, with no other attendant than my lady Rockford, and the lady Rockford, which was an unusual thing, did not only lock the chamber door, but bolted it in the inside also, and when the king came with the intent to pass the night there, he found the door so fastened, and there was some delay before he was admitted, it is possible however that the queen was in the bath or so engaged as to render it expedient to fasten her chamber door for there is no evidence to prove that any other person was in the chamber besides the lady-in-waiting and the queen the fate of anne boleyn and her brother lord rockford had recently afforded melancholy witness on how slight grounds a queen of england might be sent to the block and a noble gentleman done to death by slanderous tongues the only evidence adduced in proof of the alleged crime of anne boleyn with her brother was that he had leaned his hand on her bed and now his widow who had borne murderous testimony against her lord was to be brought by retributive justice to an ignominious death on the charge of having been an accomplice in a royal intrigue because she as lady-in-waiting had been present at an interview between the queen and her first cousin Lady Rockford was many years older than her thoughtless mistress, and, having been lady of the bedchamber to the four preceding queens, she ought to have had sufficient experience in the etiquette of the court, to have warned Catherine of the impropriety of admitting her kinsmen to her presence at an unsuitable hour. How greatly Catherine's health was shaken by the agitating scenes of that dreadful week, may be gathered from a letter from Sir Ralph Sadler, directing the archbishop and rodesley to question the queen again with respect to her intimacy with culpepper if they found her in such a state of health and mind as to bear it nothing could induce Catherine to admit that there had ever been the slightest impropriety between her and this near relative none of the great ladies in attendance on the queen were examined margaret douglas the king's niece who was the first lady in waiting however received a severe reprimand not for being privy to any levity on the part of the queen but for her own misconduct in having entered into a clandestine courtship with lord charles howard who was at the same time the young uncle of the queen and also the half-brother of her first love the unfortunate lord thomas howard who died imprisoned in the tower for having presumed to plight his troth without the king's consent to a lady in such near relation to the crown End of section 22.